this is cold war conversations if you're new here you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand cold war history accounts do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com Barry Mullen was a navigator radar on the legendary Royal Air Force nuclear bomber, the Vulcan. The navigator radar, or nav radar, had the responsibility for coordinating bombing from the aircraft. The role was performed entirely via instrumentation and was achieved via ground-facing radar and the navigation bombing system, which was a direct successor to the World War II H-2S system used in aircraft such as the Lancaster. This allowed accurate bombing from 57,000 feet down to an incredibly low height of 250 feet. Barry served during the 1970s and candidly shares his experiences. He tells us of his time at RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus during the Turkish invasion, as well as details of his mission scenarios, both conventional and nuclear. He also shares information about his escape and evasion training, as well as much more. The battle to preserve Cold War history is ongoing and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air. Via a simple monthly donation, you'll become one of our community and get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a monthly donation is not your cup of tea, you can leave a one-off donation at coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Barry Mullen to our Cold War conversation. I was selected to train as a navigator when I initially joined the Air Force. Um, I had to go through a selection procedure down at RAF Biggin Hill. The tests down there involved interviews, physical tests, uh, tests of initiative and reflex tests, etc. And at the end of that, I was told that my results indicated that I could be a pilot or a navigator. Uh, but in fact, I actually wanted to be a navigator. I didn't want to be a pilot. And I told them at that stage that I'd prefer that option. When did they decide what sort of aircraft you were going to get posted to? So the sequence was that after Biggin Hill, I turned up at Cranwell. And at Cranwell, I did my basic officer training. At the end of the basic officer training, I was then posted up to RAF Finningley, where I then started my navigator training. Yeah, the course lasted about a year. And at the end of it, um, you were told uh, what options were open. You could give your preferences, but at the end of the day, they decided which particular aircraft to send you on. Okay, and then you get sent to RAF Lindholm for... Uh, navigator bombing school I understand um, I was posted to Vulcans at the end of my uh, basic nav training uh, and that involved having to go to RAF Lindholm which was the home of the uh, nav bombing school the nav bombing school um, had a number of simulators and also we had classroom exercises and during the time there we were put through uh, a number of tests uh, about the uh, learning about the system, learning how to carry out standard operating procedures, simulated attacks, and then uh, as the course progressed, we learned how to deal with different faults and problems that could happen with the equipment, and try to uh, achieve the mission with all the problems uh, that the that they throw at you. Right, and did some people fail to pass that course? We didn't have anybody fail on my particular group. Uh, there were one or two in other groups that uh, either dropped out or failed. Right. I think it's it's worth us just explaining the role of the navigator in the Vulcan because, as I understand it, there, there's two types of navigator. There's nav radar and nav plotter. 
and I think you were training to be nav radar. That's right. Uh, it's five man crew, so we've got a captain, a co-pilot, and then three uh, rear crew: a nav radar, nav plotter, and an area electronics officer at AEO. For navigators, when they left Finley, they were posted as either a nav plotter or a nav radar. In my particular case, it was as a nav radar. Okay, and so then you get sent off to RAF Waddington, I believe. That's right. Um, once you successfully completed the NBS uh, school, you were posted to Waddington, which was the home of the Operational Conversion Unit, where you were then expected to train and fly in Balkans uh, over a period of, again, uh, nearly six months to a year, depending on uh, how you got on. And and this was using the NBS system, the navigation and, and bombing system. That's right. It was a, a, a two-phased approach. Initially, um, you trained on the Hastings aircraft. Um, this gave you a chance to become familiar with operating the equipment in an airborne environment, but at a much slower speed. The Hastings was the training platform for that. Uh, and so I had to undergo a number of exercises on the Hastings, uh, learning how to use the radar, basically learning how to do scope interpretation, in other words, learning how to interpret the re- radar returns on the screen uh, in various different uh, circumstances, such as high level, low level, and um, in different terrains. Once you've completed the uh, Hastings phase, you then went on to the Vulcan phase where you learn to do the same sort of thing, but obviously at much faster speed and in some cases a little bit more difficult circumstances. Right. And how do you mean by difficult circumstances? What did they inflict on you to uh, try and simulate situations? So the sort of thing that would happen is that your uh, radar uh, would be limited where you could use it. So you might not be able to look as far ahead as you normally could. You might not have uh, the automatic system working and you had to learn to use differing procedures to set the equipment up so that you can still get to the target and where the automatic system didn't work and release the weapon manually. As a crew, you all had to do work together because at the same time that that plotter would be having problems thrown at him, the AEO would be having problems and the captain would be checked as well. Right, and you just explain the, the layout of the cockpit of, of the Vulcan because it sounds like you're all very close together, whereas I understand that the captain and the co-pilot were on a higher level, a little bit of a distance away from you. Well, we dispute that they're on a higher level or not, but I know physically, yes. Yes, the two pilots sat in the ejection seat, um, which were located... Uh, a little bit higher up on the, uh, uh, the seat positions of the rear crew. The rear crew were lower down and facing to the rear. As you face the back of the aircraft, on the left-hand side would be the nav radar, in the middle would be the nav plotter, and on the right-hand side would be the AEO. Normally, uh, we'd be in a, a dark uh, environment. The There were two windows at the back, um, but they uh, looked more, tended to look upwards more than sideways. Uh, and they normally have the blinds down. Uh, the reason for that being it makes reading the radar scope a lot easier. But it could be unpleasant, um, especially at low level, very bumpy. The Being in a dark environment, you had no visual horizon to look at, so sometimes a little bit uncomfortable, but you got used to it. Right, and what sort of missions were you training for at that point? At that point, the mates... Uh, type of mission was uh, a high-level attack and a low-level attack. The primary form of attack in my day was the low-level attack, but we still carried out training for high-level attacks as well. Right. And what sort of load were you expected to drop in those those uh, different scenarios? Obviously, we were ultimately training to drop a nuclear weapon, but we also uh, utilised practice bombs uh, and we drop those for real. Uh, we also, on occasions, uh, drop 1,000-pound bombs, um, and we drop those for real. So uh, it was conventional and nuclear. 
Right. And the, the, the nuclear weapon that you would have had on board was the WE-177? Yes. Right. And from what I understand, that had a 30 times the power of the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Uh, yes. Uh, an extremely lethal weapon. Um, having been to Hiroshima myself and seen the effects of, of the nuclear weapon, I can imagine that uh, once the bomb had been dropped, uh, the effects would be devastating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when you complete the training, you're uh, posted operationally. Where where do you end up? Uh, at the end of the Vulcan uh, Operational Conversion Unit training, uh, I was approached to see if I would fill a, sh- a, a, a shortage they had out in Akrotiri in Cyprus and join up with another crew at short notice. As I was single at the time, I had no commitment. Um, Cyprus sounded uh, quite interesting, uh, and I accepted the posting and was sent out to Akrotiria where I joined my new crew. Right, and what what were you were you continuing your training of the various different scenarios at that point? Yes, um, before you become operational, you have to undergo a number of uh, conversion exercises uh, where the crew is checked out to see how proficient they are. So you fly a number of missions uh, with a checker on board. And he assesses whether the crew has the capability to carry out uh, full operational flying. Uh, once you've passed that, you then go on with onto the squadron as a fully operational crew with the rest of the guys. Right. And so Aquatiri, I guess I'm trying to understand what sort of missions were, were flying from there, but I guess they, the intention was to be able to fly long distance towards targets in the Warsaw Pact countries. Uh, even from somewhere like Cyprus or not? It's interesting. It's a part of the Cold War that a lot of people don't talk about because the UK was actually part of an organisation known as CENTO, which uh, originated uh, from a, a treaty signed, I understand, sometime in the 50s with Iraq, Iran, Pakistan and the UK, and then later on Iraq left and the uh, uh, Americans joined and it became CENTO. Uh, and the function of CENTO was really to contain the communist threat um, in, on the southern part of Russia, uh, going towards India and Pakistan. So our missions were tied in with CENTO, uh, and we trained to fly high low uh, to carry out missions in that area. Presumably, flying in that part of the world was was quite different in terms of atmospherics and things like that. I guess you're not going to see much because you're just looking at your scope. Well, occasionally, I used to go up on the ladder and have a look to see what things looked like when we had a quiet period. So like, I did get the opportunity outside sometime. As an example, uh, one of the trips we used to do from Aquatiri is we uh, go away for three or four nights to um, uh, Tehran in Iran and fly some missions from Tehran out to the desert, out towards the mountains, uh, practicing uh, low-level attacks. Uh, the only constraint we had was that the Iranians were always very cautious. We had to have an uh, Iranian observer on board the aircraft. In our case, uh, when we went, I can remember we had an F-4 pilot who uh, had to sit behind us in what they call the sick seat uh, and just monitor that we weren't going where we weren't supposed to go. Right, and this was 1974, so before the Islamic Revolution. That's correct, yeah. I don't think he really enjoyed his trip because he was very ill. Uh, At low level, uh, the temperature was up to nearly 50 outside. We were very low over the desert. It was extremely bumpy. And uh, I don't think he had a very pleasant trip. So uh, I think that was probably his one and only trip in the Vulcan. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, while you're in Cyprus in 1974, there's an invasion. That's right. The the Turks uh, invaded the north of the island. It was all very confusing to begin with. Nobody quite knew what was going on. But uh, intelligence gradually came through. Uh, and it became clear that the Turks also had some aircraft as well as um, boats and ships in the north of the island. And so the decision was made to ground 
the uh, the aircraft um, to ascertain what was going on. Worry being that there could be uh, a, a missile such as the Sam 7 set up at the end of the runway, which we might not be aware of, which could shoot down aircraft if they got airborne. So before we were allowed to get airborne, uh, they had to clear that it was safe to do that. Right, and, th- and this was quite a strange situation because it was effectively two NATO countries going to war with each other. It, it, in effect, yes, but uh, there's a lot of history between the Greeks and the Turks, and there's been an argument over uh, Cyprus for a, a number of years. So I think this has been boiling, boiling up for quite a while. Uh, and when the when the coup actually happened, that was the the trigger to set off the invasion by the uh, by the Turks. Yeah, and you were the duty officer the night the invasion started. I was indeed duty officer. Was really just to end, deal with any issues that happened uh, while the station commander was away at uh, home, uh, and you were supposed to manage the uh, the day to day, or in my case, the the nighttime uh, issues that came up. Uh, this particular evening, I started to get some signals coming through, which in itself is not unusual. They're usually restricted or confidential signals, but in this case, they were flash signals, which uh, was extremely disconcerting, as flash signals are normally reserved for extreme emergencies, such as wartime. And pretty quickly, I had uh, three flash signals on my desk, and we were desperately trying to get hold of the station commander, uh, and other key personnel to get them in as quickly as possible uh, to uh, sort out the procedures. And sure enough, that happened, and I gradually faded to the background and went back to my squadron uh, to join in with the rest of the guys to see how things progressed. When the decision was finally made that we could get airborne again, they decided that they would check it out by sending an aircraft up to do some circuits. Uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, our crew was selected to do that, uh, which was a bit disconcerting as we didn't quite know what was going to happen. We weren't sure whether there was going to be a risk from a, a Sam 7 or something like that being shot at us. So we decided we'd just do some uh, basic pilot circuits and see how things went. And for that trip, I sat the whole time with my seat swiveled, ready to pull the handle to go down in the bay and open the door and jump out as quickly as possible. Uh, it was a bit of a worrying time, but fortunately, um, nothing happened. Uh, the aircraft landed, and thereafter, the rest of the aircraft were able to utilise the uh, the airfield uh, for normal missions. Right. And did the Vulcan have any defence against a surface-to-air missile beyond trying to outmanoeuvre it? Oh, well, outmanoeuvre it. And they did have some uh, ECM, but I would suspect that it wouldn't have been a lot of use. Right, right. We we talk about the um, the method of exiting a uh, Vulcan in flight in a, in a little while. So once the invasion had happened, there were lots of uh, holiday makers still on the island. I understand. That's right. Um, it be decided that uh, the holiday makers would be pulled out and sent home and this involved uh, their own countries providing aircraft to come and pick them up uh, to take them back. Uh, Unfortunately uh, this took a little bit of organising and uh, for safety reasons the the different tourists were pulled back from their their holiday uh, homes and and hotels uh, back onto the uh, Akrotiri base because that was the safest place to be. Uh, They were put up in uh, in hangars and other large buildings and it was fairly traumatic um there were a lot of families with kids uh, running around getting very upset obviously a lot of people were very worried as to what was going to happen and our job was basically to act as an intermediary get whatever they needed to help them um, talk them through it and uh, provide them with as much assistance as we could could be a little bit stressful at times although for a young guy uh, if you've got this Swedish tourist there were a few perks as well. Hi this is Rhonda in Virginia and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the first-hand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. 
So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Did you remain on Cyprus or were, was the squadron dispersed elsewhere? Well, initially, um, once it was clear that it was okay to fly, we were then tasked with carrying out a maritime reconnaissance role to uh, gather intelligence as to what the uh, Turks were actually doing. And so the squadron would send aircraft up and we would then have to monitor using the the radar to see what was actually happening uh, on the ground during uh, the Turkish attacks. Uh, and we'd fly at high level in a, a, almost a, a circular pattern and monitor the movement of, of boats as they came out from the north of the island. You could see all this on the radar. Um, watch them go around to some of the holiday centres like Famagusta, etc., where um, they carry out attacks, and the pilots could actually see the sky lighting up as as this happened. And then the timings, the number of boats, etc., all the information that we could gather was passed over to the Air Electronics Officer, and he relayed the information directly back to the UK, where they were using it, obviously, for their intelligence purposes. Right, so when when did you return back to uh, England? Uh, well, initially, uh, the aircraft, there was a bit of confusion and the aircraft were con- uh, dispersed. And some aircraft were sent back to the UK, some were sent to Malta, and this just to get them off base um, while they were deciding what they were going to do with us. I went to Malta with uh, my crew and a number of other aircraft, uh, and we spent uh, a couple of weeks there. Uh, waiting to see what was going to happen. Um, eventually, we were called back, and the we were told uh, that all the squadrons, all the Vulcan squadrons, were going to be pulled back to the UK, uh, and they would be leaving at Kateri. Okay, and then you're sent back to RAF Waddington, aren't you? That's right, yes. Um, Nine Squadron was relocated uh, at RAF Waddington, and uh, I finished the rest of my tour on Nine Squadron at, at RAF Right, and but but you're also doing training abroad as well, aren't you? Yes, different scenarios this time. The overseas flights were primarily to Canada, uh, somewhere called Goose Bay, and uh, occasionally uh, over to Nebraska in the States uh, at Omaha. Uh, we'd uh, fly a lot of low-level flights um, out there. In particular, in uh, Canada, we'd fly extremely low. Uh, and on occasions below 300 feet. And that was very similar terrain to probably what you'd get uh, in some parts of Russia. So it was used to training from that aspect. The only problem with the area is it's extremely cold. And it's not the sort of place uh, I would have liked to have had a problem and had to bail out. Um, it was the temperatures got very, very cold, uh, and it was obviously very snowy as well. But interesting flying. We also did low-level flying in the States, uh, and that was mixed up a little bit with some air-to-air combat with American aircraft who would request uh, a few uh, moments with our aircraft to see if they could intercept us, and then we'd do a little bit of air-to-air work with them, see how um, how we got on, how they were just to see how they got on with the large aircraft as well. I mean, you, you mentioned bailing out, and from what I understand, the bailing out procedure from a Vulcan, particularly for the two navigators and the AEO, was not that easy. No. Uh, the pilots had ejection seats, and uh, but the rear crew didn't. So uh, the sequence was that uh, the nav radar would have to swivel his seat, pull the handle, which would push him forward into the well, he would then have to open the door, the ladder would slide out, and he would then follow that. The next guy down would be the AEO, and then the plotter. The caveat with this uh, was that the aircraft really needed to be straight and level, 
um, for you to have a good chance of getting out the aircraft and obviously at a reasonable height as well. The problem is that if the aircraft uh, had any G-force or was at an angle, it was very difficult. And uh, certainly we did lose people. Um, we had Night Squadron, we had an aircraft that crashed out in Malta. Uh, all the rear crew were killed in that one because the aircraft caught fire. It was no longer straight level. The guys couldn't get out and they were killed. It was talked about amongst the crew as to how we deal with any issue that came up. Uh, and to be fair to the pilots, they were always adamant they would stay with the aircraft until they could get the crew out uh, and they would stay with them until it was not possible to stay any longer. Because I think you mentioned to me before there was an extra challenge if the undercarriage was down as well. Yes, the, the problem is that with the um, undercarriage down, the front nose wheel was directly in front of you as you opened the door. And uh, if you jumped out, you'd just go smack into that. We did talk about that. We did train a little bit on the ground, practicing jumping out. Uh, and the technique was uh, evolved whereby you could grab one of the ramps on the side and try and swing yourself around to one side to try and avoid being hit by the uh, the nose wheel. Not something I would have liked to have tried, although I believe that somebody actually did it successfully. I'm not 100% sure of that. Right. Wow. Wow. So you, you were wearing your parachute all the time in the uh, cabin? Yes, effectively, the parachute is on the seat. So when you come in, you strap in and you put all the clips in the uh, the front bracket and uh, the parachute is then literally on your back. So as you lift stand up, you pull the, the parachute with you as well. Right. Okay. Okay. Got it. And... What what training were you given in escape and evasion? It was the basic squadron training, uh, where the squadron go out and we do a, a small exercise uh, on how to evade and how to uh, utilise the maps, etc. You were given a little bit on how to, to cook meals in a survival situation. But if you wanted a little bit more training, uh, the squadron would send you off uh, to something like the Winter uh, Survival School in Germany. Uh, I went on that one, and that was a little bit more intense because we were actually uh, put in situations which were quite arduous uh, and are quite stressful. Uh, and having to sleep overnight with just a, uh, a parachute above you in freezing cold temperatures is a lot of fun. Uh, they gave you a, a, a rabbit to eat. Um, you had to learn to cook that yourself and, and manage uh, and then um, there would be an escape and evasion exercise at, at the end where you had to get to a rendezvous point uh, with the German uh, troops chasing you uh, through the woods. Uh, the idea was to evade them as best you could and, and get to the RV. If you were unsuccessful and you got caught, you were then interrogated um, by the interrogation specialist. And... You've had to learn how to uh, deal with uh, different sorts of interrogation, such as uh, very loud, noisy shouting uh, and somebody being very nice. I actually got interrogated on one exercise uh, by a lady, uh, which was quite quite difficult, actually, I have to say. Uh, and I ended up um, in a stress position uh, for a long period during the night and was shivering quite badly at the end of it. But uh, it gave you an idea of what you could get and how difficult it was to resist it. Yeah, yeah. I guess that incentivised you to uh, evade better on, on the next course. It did, because in that particular case, the, the German one, um, we actually uh, decided that we'd go the long way around the route, whereas I know some of the American Special Forces guys decided they could invade by going through the middle of the route. They got caught. We didn't, but I have to be honest, when we came to a bridge over a river, which was the only way over it, there were some troops there. We knew we'd get caught, so we were actually went out the area and um, we found a crossing point further up river, got across there and avoided them. Uh, I can now publicly release that, as I'm sure nobody's going to say. 
Right. I, I bet they wondered how you managed to uh, avoid them. But uh, anyway, the secret's out now, Barry. It is, it is. Okay, that, that's, re- that's some really interesting detail you've you've shared there. Now, you must have been a good navigator because you get posted as an instructor, don't you? Yes, on completion of my tour on Night Squadron, I was posted to 230 OCU at Scampton as an instructor. Obviously, you're you're teaching uh, other navigators, but what what does that role entail? Is it still on the Vulcan, or is it across other aircraft types? Mainly the Vulcan. Uh, the classroom exercises um, where we actually taught the students about the equipment uh, and how to use it, etc., were mainly Vulcan ones. The simulator exercises we took were mainly Vulcan ones, but we also did uh, flying exercises with the students. With the Hastings flying, which was on uh, what was called 1066 Squadron, there was an, a number of us used to take up uh, navigators from Finningley. We'd be not only posted onto the Vulcan, but also posted onto F4 Phantoms and Buccaneers. The reason being that it would give uh, those Spasjet navigators some experience in using a radar at low level. And so we had special exercises set up for them, as well as doing the normal Vulcan navigator training. Right, right. And I, I think you were also selected for a Vulcan display crew as well for a while. Yeah, the, the crew changed every year, and uh, I was uh, selected along with some other guys on the uh, the squadron to uh, to set up a display crew to fly the Vulcan in the display uh, at uh, various bases in the UK throughout the year. We ended up, uh, at the end of it, um, being given a, a, a trip out to America. And in our case, we went to Bergstrom Air Base in, in Texas to fly a display out there. Right. And was the the Vulcan a, a popular aircraft amongst the Americans? Certainly with the Americans, um, it was very popular. Well, I think probably because they had absolutely nothing like it. Uh, and we were always looked after very well by the Americans. They very, very interested in the aircraft. And uh, generally, it was uh, it was always enjoyable doing it, going over there. Right, right. And I think there, there was one time where um, you went to Lyndon Johnson's ranch and met his wife, Lady Bird Johnson. That's right. On, on the day of the display, we flew over the state capital with uh, some American fighters in formation. After landing, um, we did the display, uh, and then we went in the uh, uh, officers' mess afterwards for some drinks with the Americans. Um, while we were there, we were told that uh, a request had come down uh, from Lady Bird Johnson, and she uh, asked for the crew to go out to her ranch uh, the following day. Right, so what was that like? Very interesting. Uh, quite clearly, the, the wife of a Mexican American president is not something you expect to uh, to happen when you go away on these trips. But uh, it, they, uh, the ranch, we went out to LBJ's ranch. Uh, she was very, very pleasant, very chatty, showed us around. He had a fantastic collection of uh, classic cars, which was very interesting. Uh, gained us some... Uh, drinks uh and all in all very very pleasant trip we uh, posed for photos uh, and uh that was it right right okay so uh, after that you're you're then posted back operationally to 50 squadron that's right uh on completion of the 230 ocu tour i went back to operational squadron joined up with a new crew and and flew with them Right. Are they, these were different mission profiles, though, that you were working on? Uh, it's still the standard uh, operational mission profiles that I'd flown on uh, Nine Squadron. Um, the only difference was clearly it was with a different crew. You'd mentioned in the notes that you sent to me the nuclear weapons simulator checks. Can you describe what that involved? Okay. Well, part of the uh, the other squadron is that you have basic training requirements. So you have to carry out a number of uh, tasks in a certain period. So by that, I mean you have to carry out a number of certain sorts of attacks. 
the, the plotter had to do certain sorts of navigation trips. For instance, we had astro navigation. We have to do at least one or two trips of that. We also had to uh, have a number of simulator uh, exercises where we go in the simulator and be assessed. And we'd also have nuclear weapon training. That training would involve using a small simulator where the nav radar and nav plotter would sit down and go through the switching actions to release a nuclear weapon. And then the instructor would uh, throw a number of faults at them to see how they coped. Um, and he would be assessing how effective we were at dealing with those issues and if whether or not we actually got the weapon away. In my particular case, um, a little story, we had a particularly uh, nasty uh, instructor and then he would give you some pretty awful faults. And myself and my plotter were being put through the mill somewhat and uh, he was spending a lot of our equipment and he was trying to, to catch us out and we got to the stage where everything had just about gone but I could just about get the weapon off and he was hassling me saying, well what are you going to do? Where where are you going to release the weapon? You've got to release it, yes, but where are you going to release it? And I'd had enough at this stage that I turned around to him and I said, Al, where do you live? Did he take that well? Loved. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. You also um, talk about the the crews and their the target study because what I hadn't realised was that you knew what your target was going to be if the balloon went up. Yes, yeah, so over above the training targets, which is all simulated uh, target, we also uh, did target study which involved looking at the target we were actually expected to attack in the event that uh, we were given full uh, nuclear release. Can you tell me what that target was? Uh, well, I had a number of targets. The one I do remember is, uh, is Tallinn. Not the city itself, but actually a military complex outside the city. Uh, that was the principal target that we were aiming at but quite clearly uh, with a nuclear weapon that uh, it would have been quite devastating for the local area as well and what intelligence information were you provided with in order to study the uh, the target we were put in a room uh we locked the door and then uh we opened the safe and pull out the intelligence information that had been provided that intelligence inv information included uh, an, an initial plan of the route, the types of uh, surface-to-air missiles you could expect to come across, the type of aircraft you could expect to come across, their location, and you then had to sit down uh, and amongst yourselves decide on how you were going to carry out this attack. So it may be that you alter the route to avoid a certain uh, SAM complex or you may alter it to keep out range of certain aircraft as best you could. Uh, so we were left with sorting it out amongst ourselves and deciding how we're going to carry out the attack and what the issues would be. One of the issues was quite clearly what would happen once we'd released the weapon, because the brief is that clearly you fly back to your base. But it may have been the case that the base wasn't there. Um, so we had to consider different options as to where we go and what we do right right and what did those discussions consist of what what were the options that you talked about well we were limited to, to a large extent by uh the amount of fuel we had uh and what height we were going to fly back um and it was really tried to find somewhere which we thought might be relatively safe uh, and without being too specific uh, we decided that going south would be the best option. The difficulty is of course that you still had other threats to avoid so whether we made it or not um, I guess we'll never know but uh, it was very difficult but we had to come up with some sort of plan. Right, right and your role is pretty crucial in this because you are controlling the release of the nuclear weapon, aren't you? 
Yes. Uh, during the attack, what happens is that once we get into the attack phase, the aircraft accelerates and the nav radar is then really responsible for getting the aircraft to the target. This would involve him using the radar to identify significant features which he could aim at um, to get the aircraft as uh, accurately as possible to the target and get the weapon released as accurately as possible. These were known as offsets, which are basically significant radar features um, set a certain distance away from the target. We'd have offset 1, which should be the aiming offset, and offset 2, which we call the leading offset. The leading offset was something that you could pick up fairly early in the run, and then that would give the aircraft an initial heading to fly on. At this stage, with autopilot in, the nav radar is really controlling the aircraft in, in, a, in a horizontal sense. So it'd be going left or right, depending on, on how you move the, uh, the radar stick. In a war situation, it'd be difficult because you'd be switching your radar on and off. Um, you don't want to give your position away uh, too easily. And the radar would only stay on during the final phases of the attack. So as you come in, you get the first offset. Um, you then come into the aiming offset. You um, have got the system set up in, in automatic. It's, we call this the switch action. It goes across and it's called bomb. That puts the aircraft under the uh, radar's control. And it would then count down the, the range to the release. The pilots would be concentrating on keeping the aircraft um, flying directly towards the target by following their instruments. And as you got close to the target, the radar would then open up the bomb doors. Bomb doors open. As you come over the target, bomb gone, bomb doors shut, accelerate and get away as quickly as possible. Right, right. And how, how did you feel about that responsibility and the fact that you were releasing such a powerful weapon? Well, I've had plenty of time to reflect on it. Um, well, quite clearly, it's a, a horrific weapon. Um, but at that time, it was something which you tried not to think about too much. Um, we're all young lads anyway, uh, and we tried to stay as professional as possible and think of it more in a mechanical mode whereby you are doing a job uh, and you're doing it in response to a, a first attack. So it's not like me and going as the aggressor we were going as the responder and it was worth considering that maybe they had dropped a weapon which had killed family, friends, relatives um, not that you were thinking about it in terms of revenge but uh, once you're on the aircraft and going that way I think we'd have all just concentrated on doing our job to the best of our ability yeah yeah, no, no, understood. I mean, that was the intention of the training was that you would work together to do what the job entailed. Yeah. Um, and not necessarily que question things like that. But you must have thought about what would have happened to your family and, and, and your friends as well. Yes. I think it's quite horrific, which is, which is why. I'm so pleased, obviously, that uh, nothing ever happened. So the, I know it's one of the arguments used for deterrence is, is that it stops the other person um, attacking you. So maybe uh, it was successful in that knowing that we had an effective response uh, was something which made an aggressor think twice about. Yeah, yeah. And did the RAF prepare you for that level of responsibility i mean you know so, you know did they do psychological analysis or, or anything like that or you know I, I guess not in the the 1970s it, not in those days ian no yeah. not in those days you really uh, i i have heard of people say well i i can't do this job um but that was well before they got onto something like the vulcan and uh, it was very early days um we lost somebody because of that, but it's it's a it's a personal choice. And at the end of the day, uh, as you say, it's a job, and you have to stay as professional and as detached as you can. Do it professionally. There are other people out there in positions to argue whether we should or shouldn't do it. Um, that wasn't our job. 
Yeah, yeah. And your your training also included things like uh, a scramble. Yes. I mean, you you weren't on QRA, were you? No, QRA at, at Finnish Monotaro was in the Vulcans, but we used to have a lot of exercises, in particular something called Tacliball, which is a tactical evaluation of the station. Uh, and a, a team of people, independent people, would turn up and start issuing orders uh, and giving scenarios out as to what is going to happen. When the station was tested. Everybody from the station commander downwards were all tested in various things. And as far as the crews are concerned, this meant that we were uh, questioned uh, on uh, on our targets. We were quizzed about our knowledge of the systems. And then as the exercise progressed, we knew at some stage we'd be scrambled. So uh, we'd be put on, on standby. Uh, and eventually uh, the alarm would go and the aircraft uh, would be scrambled very quickly and would be dispersed initially. Uh, and the dispersal airfield then would take a number of aircraft and we would wait there until we got uh, a release to do our imaginary attack um, on whatever target had been selected. Once the alert uh, came or was stepped up, um, the crew put on, on readiness, and as soon as the uh, alert went off, we'd have to rush out to the aircraft, be it on a bus or, run, or running, scramble into the aircraft, do uh, um, shortened startup checks for the pilots. This meant instead of starting one engine at a time, they'd do what's called a ripple rapid. They'd hit all four buttons, and all four engines would uh, start up at the same time, and then we'd get airborne as quickly as we could. Uh, then you'd see well, three, four aircraft, one after the other, going down the runway uh, very quickly. I mean, for an outside, I'm looking at it, it would be quite a, quite a sight to see four Vulcans going off one after the other. Yeah, I think I've seen some film of, of one of those scrambles, and it certainly is a, a, a very Im- impressive sight. Hi, I'm Andrew, and I'm very proud to support Cold War Conversations with a small donation each month. Because Ian's put together such a brilliant range of interviews. If you want high power, there's the son of Nikita Khrushchev, there are cross-border romances, old-fashioned spy stories, and the bizarre world of East European football. If you do support the podcast, your wallet will be a tiny bit lighter, but your brain will be very, very thankful. Like to be like Andrew and help me to continue to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll become one of our community get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Um, Did, did you fly uh, other aircraft other than the Vulcan during your career? Um, I've been fortunate enough uh, while I was in the Air Force to fly... Uh, in Varsities, Dominies, Jet Promise, uh, during training, uh, obviously Hastings and Balkans. I also got a trip as a passenger in uh, a Lightning, a Buccaneer, Hawk, Tornado, and some transport aircraft and helicopters as well. Right. Well, what was it like flying in a Lightning? That was probably the highlight. The aircraft hasn't got all room inside. It's fairly Spartan and uh, the pilot decided that uh, as soon as we got airborne that he put reheat on and he just pulled the stick back and we went vertical and i can always remember looking at the altimeter as it whizzed around i've never seen anything like it it's quite 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 amazing really how quickly we climbed i took my hat off to those guys they had very limited equipment their radar was very poor and yet they carried out uh, air-to-air intercepts a uh, fantastic job they did really was so uh, Great aircraft to fly, and I was very lucky to get that opportunity. Uh, it's what I won't forget. Yeah, I'm hoping to uh, speak to a Lightning pilot in the in the not too distant. I've uh, been in contact with one. What would you say was the the most dangerous situation you you'd been in during your service in the Royal Air Force? Well, I was fortunate I never had anything drastically dangerous, but we did have a situation once where I was on fifty squadron. We got airborne. Uh, the undercarriage uh, had not fully retracted properly 
Uh, that was the indication that the pilots got. And we were in a situation where we had to make a decision as to whether or not we were going to attempt to land or we were going to bail out. We had to go over the, the sea to dump the fuel load because we're on full fuel at that stage. Once that happened, we tried different means to try to get the other carriage locked down, but we were unsuccessful. And it was then a case as to whether or not uh, the rear crew were going to bail out. Uh, we discussed that, and it was decided uh, amongst ourselves that we'd stick with the, the captain. Uh, we'd have a go at landing the aircraft. Um, so it was a bit a bit worrying, to put it mildly. As we came in on the approach, we were fully expecting the undercarriage to collapse, and um, then we'd have the issue of trying to get out the aircraft. So at that point, it was uh, extremely worrying. But fortunately, the undercarriage didn't collapse, and subsequent investigation found out it was something very simple. It was an indication fault uh, in the cockpit. So the undercarriage was fine, but uh, uh, for a period there, it was quite worrying. I could I could imagine because if the undercarriage had failed, there was no way out for for you. Probably what we would have had to have done is blow the cockpit off and then climb out uh, through the pilot's seats and out that way. And that's probably the only way we could have gone out. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information